Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Well, good morning, everybody, again. Hey, uh, I've been trying to do this here recently just because uh, we're back doing a sermon curriculum in our small group, so uh, I've started making note sheets, and um, Case said he was willing to pass them out. If anybody wants one, just slip your hand up real quick, and he'll get there over here. If you want to get up yourself and get it, that's great. Uh, but we want you to follow along and be taking notes. So I want to begin this way. Um, what are some things, just you don't have to answer out loud, but in your own mind, what are some things people are passionate about? Have you ever thought about that? Like things that people are, are passionate about, zealous about, if I could. Let me, let me just define that word real quick, zealous. Zealous is filled with a strong desire to get something done, uh, to see something succeed. Do you know anybody like that who's passionate about some things? One of the first moments that, that really, that I saw it in action was when, uh, was day one of going to college. And I met my roommates and we went to the cafeteria and um, we went through the line and I got one of these, right? I grew up in Toledo. We call this what? Pop. Sitting across from me was somebody who grew up in the great state of New York. What do they call it up there? Soda. And if you think I called it pop one too many times, you bet I did. You think he was like, this is soda, this is pop, this is soda. Well, then I met my wife, and she's like, no, 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 no. We call it Coke. <laughs> like, yeah, but what about Pepsi? No, that's Coke. <laughs> well, how do you order? Well, you go to the restaurant. They say, what Coke do you want? I want a Pepsi. Well, wait a second here. But you know what? During that time, at lunchtime, I mean, you, ha- you almost want to just get Kool-Aid. Because there's people that would be like, what are you drinking? Pop. Soda. Pop. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And then every year after that, you watch a whole ba- brand new batch of freshmen walk in, and then they get to learn. Like, And then they say, you got an accent? I mean, maybe I do, but I don't know. I don't think I do. And then so they're making fun of you. You know, you washing your car? Yeah, I am washing my car. And then, and then, what do you call this? I mean, besides a dirty old shoe. Right? A sneaker, right? No, no, nobody's sneaking around in these things. They're tennis shoes. But you want to talk about another fight. I mean, there was almost fisticuffs when people were like... It's a sneaker. I'm like, yeah, let's go sneak up and get some food. (laughs) People got passionate about all the wrong things. And now look at it. Race. I mean, people, people get passionate about race, and they should. People get passionate about who they love. No matter red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And they wrap their arms around and hurt when others hurt. Yet there are others who are just as passionate in the race world about who they don't like and how much they hate. Or politics. 
I think about politics this year has been really, really hard. Like all of a sudden the church is defined by one political party? No. That is not who we are. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We're not followers of a political party. Yet you would think a statement like that. I mean, you'd be cast out of most churches these days. Because we're so passionate about the wrong things. What about religion? We know people are passionate about religion. I mean, trying to talk to somebody about religion, and they'll get really passionate really fast. I had an interesting flight home. I was telling our small group on Thursday night. So I flew to see my daughter this week, and um, we we're just really blessed to stay in a nice place. And, and then we flew, I flew from there to Denver, Colorado. My wife left on Tuesday. I did some sermon work on Wednesday and Thursday, and, and I flew home on Thursday, and I flew to Denver, and that flight was like completely packed, completely packed. Not one seat available, and I was really trying hard to save the seat that was right next to me for just the right person, and that didn't happen. And I forgot to put my earphones in. And she sat next to her aunt, and her aunt's like, oh, you already found somebody to talk to. And I'm like, yeah, she already found somebody to talk to. I guess I should have been a little bit more open to talking to people because I am a preacher. But we talked for three hours. She was passionate about a lot of things, including how long my eyebrows were. I guess that was her line of work. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? But you got talking about the Bible. And she got really defensive. People get passionate about all kinds of things. Zealous about all kinds of things. Heated about all kinds of things. What are we zealous about? What are we like excited about? What are we passionate about? Are we passionate about, let's get church back to the old ways? Maybe God's trying to teach us something through all of this, folks. Are we passionate about the word of God? The worship of God? Are we zealous? What would he say? Are we passionate about the lost and giving grace to others that don't deserve it? Today in our text, we're going to find out what was Jesus passionate about. All in favor of finding what Jesus was passionate about? Thank you. Yeah. So, let's pray. And then we're going to, I just have two points. We're going to explain the text, and we're going to apply the text. That's it. Okay? So if you're taking notes, explanation, application. That's it. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask, again, for grace in this moment. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illumine our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Set, set aside all distraction. Help us to understand your word. Speak in a way, God, that is glorifying through me, not only to you, but speak in a way that also will move in hearts. God, we pray for that. We long for that. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in, we're in John chapter 2. 
verse 12 is where we're going to begin because that's where uh, Pastor Jer left off. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I had a great time listening to Pastor Jer last week as we were traveling uh, to Alex's church, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed that as well. So let's begin where he left off in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. So after this, after Jesus turned water into wine, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they were staying there a few days. So a couple things we need to note here. He was traveling with his boys. He was traveling with his mom. He was traveling with his brothers. And when it says brothers there, it could mean brothers or sisters. But understand, do you know how many brothers Jesus had? You understand, that's like a real deal. Like Mary and Joseph had other children. They had actually six other children. They had two girls, four boys. The four boys were named, do you know? Two Bible books were written by them. James, Jude, one was named after dad, Joseph. And, and the, uh, the fourth one was named Simeon brothers of Jesus. At this point, they're traveling with him. There's another point where they leave him, but then they come back to him. It's kind of a unique place. Verse 13, the pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So let's, let's just, real quick, let's look at the text here again. Notice what, that after he left Cana, he went down to Capernaum, and then now he goes up to, so we just have to understand quickly how it works in the Bible, right? When I look at a map and I say, I'm going up to Florida, you would all look at me like, there's a problem there, Nate. You're looking at the wrong map. You got it upside down. But that's not how it works in the Bible. Everybody say, that's not how it works. Right, because here's how it works. It's about, ge- it's about um, the geography of the land, right? The topical way of the land. Capernaum was by the sea, by the Sea of Galilee. Cana was in the mountains. So for them to go to Capernaum, they went down the mountain. But you always ascended to Jerusalem, okay? Just so you know, like, you will always see people going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was on a mountain. All right, so now that we got that settled, it's not a crazy map thing that you're looking in the back going, no, that's not possible. That's not, he's wrong. The Bible's wrong. No, no, it's, it's not about east, west, north, south. It's about height different here, okay? All right, so now that we got that out of the way. The Passover of the Jews was a hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is one of four instances that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover. Do you know them? Like, in his earthly ministry, he went three times. The first time he went, he was, it was recorded in, in, in Luke. He was 12, and he went to the Passover, And then they couldn't find him because he was teaching and asking questions of the leaders, and they were all amazed. And he's like, shouldn't I be in my father's house? And Mary's like, no, not right now. Come with me. So the pastor of the Jews is at hand. Why? Why did he have to go? Well, every, uh, every year there were three feasts that Jewish men had to attend. The Passover was one of them. Uh, Followed by... Um, 40 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, and then in the fall, the Feast of Booths. So those three, they had to attend all the time. They had to be there. It was an obligation because of Deuteronomy chapter 16. It said all the men would show up for these three feasts. And it said they won't show up empty-handed either. The three ways Jesus showed up for those feasts, the Feast of the Passover, I should say, was quite unique. 
Now, the Passover itself was unique because it reminded Israel of what God did for them. Do you remember the story? Like, I got a little picture here on the screen of, of that. Do you remember in Egypt? And they were, they were slaves. And God said, kill a lamb, spread the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil. When the, when the destroyer comes at night, you will be passed over. That's the story of the Passover. And the feast was instituted after that. And every year they would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. When God, listen, listen, when God took them from bondage to life. And look forward to this day when Jesus would take us from bondage from sin to eternal life. And so Jesus would go up. Now, it's, it's interesting. The first time he went, he was teaching and understanding at the age of 12. The next time Jesus goes to the Passover recorded in the scriptures, he cleanses it. This is the text that we're here. The next time we read, I think it's John 7, he goes, he's teaching about his death. And the next time he goes, he cleanses it one more time. He comes in first in the triumphal entry. He cleanses the temple. And then he is actually put on a cross as the lamb that would be the substitutionary atonement for us. It's quite interesting. So the pastor of the feast of the Jews was at a hand and in the temple. Now I want you to do something with me here as we explain this. We see a noun and a pronoun or a noun, pronoun, and then a verb attached to it. So like Jesus went, right? He, and now we're going to see found. I want you to, in your Bible, in your notes, kind of circle that. Circle these noun or pronouns and, and, and then what was the action after that? What was the verb that followed? So I'll emphasize it as I read. Verse 13 says, the pastor of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is doing something. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. You might wonder, that's weird. Why were they there? Why were they needed in the temple? Well, Deuteronomy 16, verse 17 says that you weren't supposed to show up empty-handed. When you came to the temple, you were to offer sacrifice. You were... I was reading this morning, Josephus emphasized, or um, not emphasized, um, thought that there were at least 250,000 sheep that were sacrificed on the day of Passover. And so for every 10 people, one sheep would be sacrificed. So that's somewhere close to 2 million people would be in this city. That's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of cows. That's a lot of pigeons. But they were, it was necessary in some ways because, number one, they had to travel. Like, people were coming from all over. Josephus also recorded that in Babylon, uh, Jews that were still living in Babylon sent money to pay the temple tax, that's where the money changers were there, to pay the temple tax, and, and, and they had to have an armed guard because it was so much money. People were traveling from all over, and who wants to travel with a lamb the whole way? Who wants to have your pigeons on your back when you came from Damascus or from the Sea of Galilee? Several days' journey, and it was supposed to be a perfect lamb, and then what if they wouldn't accept it because something happened along the way, and who wants to drag a cow behind them? On, so... So someone said, hey, let's just set it up right here. 
Second reason was it had to be specific. It had to be a certain way. You had to have a perfect lamb. You had to have, a, in some cases, a red cow. You had to have young pigeons or, or old doves. It had to be one or the other. And then lastly, the money had to be pure. Now, some would say, well, they needed to exchange the money because it had a picture of Caesar on it. You weren't supposed to worship any image, but that had nothing to do with it. It had everything to do with the fact that Romans would take iron and put it in their money, and so it wasn't pure. You say it was a silver coin, but it really was partly filled with iron, and it's something like our government does these days, right? It's not a real dime filled made with silver, but it's got other things in it. And so they used like the Tyranian coin or their coin because it was pure. It was pure money. They wanted pure money. So there was a necessity there. They would have to have a sacrifice. They would have to have the Passover meal. They had to pay the temple tax. Jews were faithful. They were faithful givers. So Jesus walks into this. Now imagine this scene. Jesus walks into this. Imagine walking into church and on the way in, we had cattle lowing and sheep buying and birds doing what birds do, chirping. And Jesus walks in, verse 15, and making a whip of cords, those are the things that they tied up the animals with, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Now somebody say stampede. Thank you. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house, there it is again, a house of trade. It's interesting to note, Solomon built a temple, but he didn't call it his father's house. Ezra and Nehemiah built a temple, but they didn't call it that. Zerubbabel built a temple, but he didn't call it his father's house. Herod built the temple, but he didn't call it his father's house. But Jesus said, this is my father's house. His disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. So we have the picture down, right? Jesus is in there like busting tables and pushing out. And it's interesting to note he didn't set the birds free. Like you could collect the coins. You could, the sheep, they're, they're herding animals. They just left in a herd and the shepherds could gather them. The cows could be corralled. But if you let the birds go, I mean, he still had concern for those who were doing this business. He just didn't want it to happen right there. Why was he angry? I mean, it seems like a necessity, right? People needed it. Why would Jesus get angry? Well, I have a picture here I wanted to show you. This is what uh, someone has made. This, this gentleman's like 70-some years old, but he's taken 20 years to make this model. He bakes like all of the little marble uh, bricks that you see. He's made, this is like to, to scale. Now, the outer section of that, um, probably over here on this side, and I know it's not helping for those of you watching online, but there's a little fence there. And that little fence, and it goes all the way around, and it's called the Court of the Gentiles. We know who Gentiles are, right? Everybody say, it's me. Yeah. See, the Gentiles could come into the place of worship with the Jews, but could only go to that fence. And then beyond that fence was where the Jews could go. 
and then beyond that was the court of women, and that's as far as the ladies could go, and beyond that was where the altar of sacrifice, would, where the men would go with the sacrifice, and beyond that the priests would go into the building, and the holy of holies was where the high priest would go. Right? So they were to begin in the court of the Gentiles, entered your praise with thanksgiving in our heart. They're supposed to upbeat, and we're going, and we're singing of Jesus, and our worship has begun, and they're supposed to begin right there. They're supposed to head into this temple, now, the Gentiles would experience that only so far. Keep that in mind. Because Jesus walks into a circus. That's what this was. He walked into a place where it was supposed to be about worship, and it was animals and money changers. It was a circus. I once knew a man who was shortly a member of our church. Actually, he wasn't a member because he said he was a member of the universal church and he wouldn't become a member of a church. But I quickly found out that his purpose for being there was because he, he wanted to expand his business. And once he had finished with us, he went on to another church and then he went on to another church and he was just using the church. To him, the church was nothing more than a circus. And can you imagine trying to have a conversation with all of this going on? The temple was supposed to be a place where it's quiet, meditative. Imagine worshiping like that. It was in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was designed so that the Israelites could proclaim, listen, proclaim the awesomeness of God. God is awesome in this place. What were they proclaiming? Thirdly, it was a place where the leaders rationalized their need for more money. They were just making excuses. The problem, if somebody actually brought their own lamb, they would reject it. So they had to buy one of their lambs. If they brought their own cow, they would reject that cow. So you had to buy their merchandise. Now I've been, I've been to places like that where you, you were like, I'm going to use, no, no, you have to use our stuff. How, do you, how does that make you feel, right? No, no, no. Uh, you have to use, I've been to the hospital and I have a really good same mask on that Justin's wearing, same mask, and then all of a sudden it's like, no, you have to use our mask. No, it's the same mask, but you have to use our mask. Right? It's just, it was what was going on. You're like, this doesn't make any sense. But if you want to be a true Jew, you had to do it our way. The rationalizations. And inter interestingly enough, the temple tax that they were taking money for, the temple tax was to help the poor. Not to continue to build and build and build on this huge temple. The money that was to come in was to help the poor. And the poor were being raked over the coals. Rightfully, Jesus grabs whips and starts rushing the animals out. He starts turning over the tables. He starts pouring out their, their financial gain. He says to the guy with the pigeons, get those birds out of here. Now notice, notice what the Jews do. So the Jews, and that's really for the, that's just the Jewish leaders. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? Now, before we get all mad at them, I mean, I think we have a place to get mad at them, but, 
but that was a correct response. The problem was they missed the sign, right? The disciples got the sign. The disciples are like, oh, Psalm 69 says zeal for your house will consume you. The, the Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to know the law, were like, what's he doing? Why are you doing this? Hey, buddy, hey, buddy, who told you you could do that? Who put you in charge? Uh, God, <laughs> me. Uh, but maybe it was their self-conscience as well. Maybe they actually did have a problem with the commercialization, but they were just lacking the trust in the word of God. And I find it amazing the leaders probably wouldn't even believe who the one they're asking that question to really was. Like, who gives you this right? Um, Now, John writes the word sign. You see it there in the text, sign, sign, sign. Jesus, uh, John never records the word miracle, but they're always asking for a sign. Understand it's kind of the same thing. So the Jews are like, hey, buddy, hey, 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 who told you you could do this? Isn't it amazing, though? Everybody was captivated by this. Everybody was like, I can't believe what's just happening. I can't move. I'm frozen in time. You ever been there? Like, whoa, watch this guy. What's going on? Whoa, whoa. Jesus had that authority. Look at verse 18. He said, what sign do you show? Verse 19, Jesus said, here's a sign. Destroy this temple. That's a command, by the way. As written in Greek, it was a command. Jesus is looking at him and it's like, destroy this temple. Go ahead, I dare you. Do it. Do it. I'm telling you, do it. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? It's interesting that Jesus uses the word in Greek for sanctuary, the place of God's dwelling. Jesus says, destroy the place of God's dwelling and I will raise it up in three days. And they use the Greek word that means the temple complex. They totally missed it. Well, you're saying destroy this temple. It took us 46 years to build this massive thing. I was talking with Jer about this uh, the other day. I think it was Friday night. And it's interesting to note that the same word Jesus used to destroy this sanctuary, destroy this place, destroy this. Holy of holies, this temple, is the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where he says, do you not know, listen, listen, Christian, do you not know that your body is the, what's the word? Temple of the Holy Spirit. Same word. Same word. Notice also, I want you to notice this too. Look at the end of verse 19. Who's the active agent in Jesus' resurrection? He is, right? His earthly body is gone, but he is the active agent. You can't kill God, right? God lays down his life willingly, but he raises it back up again. You thought you could kill me, but you couldn't. The problem was they were worried about the wrong things. It always happens when true worship gets set aside, by the way. For the building, for money, 
for stuff, for earthly important stuff. True worship gets set aside. True conviction, well, we'd have to change some things and that might make people mad. Heavenly-minded Christians seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Did they believe it? No. They didn't even believe it after he died. They didn't believe it when Mary Magdalene said, he is risen from the dead. And they're like, what, what? They weren't counting the days he should rise on this day. But they remembered it after they went to the tomb and saw that he was raised from the dead. They remembered what he had said, that, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. I find it interesting, too. I've done the research, but you do the research. All the gospels speak of Jesus telling of his death, and all the gospels speak of Jesus telling of his resurrection. It was a common theme throughout the good news gospels. All right, before we get to application, one more thing, okay? I want to give you five pictures real quick of the gospels uh, of, of, excuse me, five pictures in the Gospel of John of Jesus talking about his death and what it would look like so we can understand it. The very first thing we see in the Gospel of John about Jesus' death was that it would be a substitution. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that there would be substitutionary atonement. A lamb was placed on an altar to be a substitute for your sin. You understood that, right? Like when they brought the lamb for sacrifice and the blood was poured out and was gathered in a silver cup, they sprinkled it on the altar. It was for you so that you could be cleansed for the next year. Jesus now is going to be the lamb of God who's going to take away your sin. All in favor of that, say amen. Right? And John points out the fact that this was going to be substitutionary. In John chapter 2, Jesus points out that what it's going to look like. He's like, destroy this temple. Now, how, how do you, anybody destroy things? Like, just for fun? Truth, truth about me, when I was growing up, and I don't suggest this on anybody, maybe even you shouldn't tell the story, but I used to build models, and then I like to use firecrackers and throw the plane and watch it explode, right? Anybody ever, like, remodel a house? You walk up to the drywall and say, would you please, would you please come down? No, you, you take a sledgehammer and you like destroy it. You take your, you took the foot wedge and you go through the wall. You take a saw and you cut down the, Jesus says destroy. Listen, he's telling us that his death for us is going to be painful. It's going to be brutal. They're going to destroy this temple. In John chapter three, he was the serpent that was lifted up. He was talking to Nicodemus, and we'll get to that. But back in the Old Testament, there was a plague that was going around because the people had sinned. And Moses crafted a serpent and put it on a cross and held it up in front of the people because the Lord had prescribed if they would just look to the cross, they would be freed from their sin. And Jesus says, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, that he would be the propitiation. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In John chapter 10, he was the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And it just shows us that Jesus didn't do this because someone was pressuring him to do it. He did it voluntarily. And the last thing we note about his death is that 
In John chapter 12, he says, unless a seed falls in the ground, is placed in the ground, it dies, and then it will flourish and come to life. Jesus is the seed that's planted. And he had to die for the glory of God. That his death would be voluntary and his death would produce fruit to the glory of God. So John is all about showing us not only that Jesus knew he was headed towards death, but his death was necessary for us to have eternal life. I write these things so that you may know, John says, know you have eternal life. All right, let's apply this. I know some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Nate, you've been off for a couple weeks and you haven't given us the hub of this message. (laughs) Okay, all right, fine. I have two. I'll show you all. Two hubs here at the end of the message. Here's the first one. Jesus cares about what goes on in his house. You look at this text. Jesus was deeply concerned about what was going on in his house. He didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. He didn't like what was going on. He was moved by it. Angry yet sinned not. And drove out what was not supposed to be there. Notice, he went to it. He he went into it. He, He was moved and he poured out and he cast out and he overturned. thought about that as, 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 as we have claimed ownership of something. We call our own. Doesn't it bother us when someone comes in to do something in our house and we just don't like it? Like, I just imagine, like, you walking into my house, right? And I'm sitting there in my blue chair with my dog on my lap and you, you pick up my dog. Well, that's going to be the first initial problem right there. But then you go to my refrigerator and then you make yourself a cup of coffee and then you go... Say, well, I'm going to bed, see ya, and you take my bed. Who does this person think they are? You can just get out of my house. You get out of my house, hey, give me my dog back. I can't imagine what Jesus walked into there in that moment and what he was seeing. But I gotta ask you, as we come into the house of God, as the people of God, to worship God, What excuses have we brought in? What distractions do we bring into the house of God? I thought about the excuses. The rationalizations. You know, rationalization is just (laughs) temporary relief to a situation, but it's really hiding a deeper issue, right? So you start rationalizing stuff, you're just hiding a deeper issue. You're calling it an excuse. It seems like a logical excuse at the time. Well, Nate, I don't sing because we don't use hymnals. Listen, I I grew up in that, like, hymnal to what we do now kind of era, right? That's wrong. Those are great songs. These are great songs. We're singing to God. We're not singing about whether or not you can find the bass line. That's a rationalization. That's an excuse that you're bringing to stop and hinder your worship. Well, I don't come because I'm inconvenienced for a half an hour because i, I got to wear one of these things. Yeah, but I meet you at Walmart and you've been there for three hours and you're still wearing one. That's an excuse. 
I don't give because I don't know where it goes. Well, your problem is with God, then not with me. Okay? Our worship in all our phases is to the glory of God. Well, I don't help because I'm untrained, Nate, or I'm shy, or I don't know. what. If, if, I, if I say to Brent, I can help, what if he doesn't like me? If I, if I say to Jamie, I can't help him teach, but what if the kids don't like me? That's, those are excuses that you're using to hinder your worship. Well, I don't pray because, because I'm not really sure it works. I get that. But even when you're not sure, you must continue. I have to ask you, what excuses are you using right now? And if I touched on one of your hot buttons, I'm sorry, I didn't have you in mind. I had myself in mind. But what excuses are you working on right now to hurt your worship? Jesus cares about what goes on here with his people in his house. Well, this isn't God's house. Well, yeah, there's two or more of us gathered. It is. What are you passionate about in concerns of the things of God? Don't answer that out loud. But are you passionate about the things of God? And then do we have too many distractions that ruin our worship? Are we too busy? Are we too, too busy to worship? To stop. And just enjoy God. I thought about that this week. I thought about like what it was like in my house growing up, right? Dad was a pastor like myself. Um, I think I've shared this with you guys. Like when I was like your age um, and a little bit older, I, we couldn't even leave the house on Sundays. We had to take naps. You know how miserable that was for an ADD kid. My dad probably loved it because there was peace and quiet in the house. He would, he would turn on the football game and we could all fall asleep right there taking a nap until we heard him snoring and then we'd sneak out. I was thinking about the distractions of like getting in the car with children. When I was growing up, uh, uh, I'm sure my mother didn't have any peace coming into church. I know we didn't when we had young children and we would drive that three miles to church and they were all screaming in the back seat at each other and coming into church angry at each other. I just wonder how many distractions we actually walk into church with and it ruins our worship. Can you imagine the distraction they walked into? Sheep, cows, birds, people. I'm losing money here. I wonder how many programs that we use as distractions for our worship. Listen, church, I'm saying this out loud right now. If a program becomes more important than worship, we're not doing the program anymore. God's concerned about worship. Us focused together with Him. What are we passionate about? I wrote this on my whiteboard this week, that the condition of the temple was the condition of the heart. The condition of the Jewish temple was the condition of the people's heart. What's the condition of your temple? It'll tell you a lot about the condition of your heart. 
Jesus was passionate about getting it back to where it's supposed to be. What would Jesus find? I'm thinking about that. Like he's walking up to this giant, beautiful, big, bold. Any other word I could use to describe it with a B there, right? Temple. That was rotten to the core on the inside. He would get so fed up in the book of Matthew later on when he addressed all of the people that led the temple. He's like, you're whitewashed tombs. What happens inside a tomb, right? The outside of the tomb is really beautiful. Inside of the tomb is what? A stink, stinky, rotten, dead body. The condition of the temple was the condition of the heart of the people. What's the condition of your temple? Is it the temple of you? Is it the temple of God? Look up here. Do you not hate me because I tell you the truth? I love you. And I, I shared with Jared this morning, this is heavy, this weighs on me. But Jesus cares about his house and his worship. Second hub. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. You understand that when Jesus said, destroy this temple, he's like, listen, guys, this is where it's at right here. This is it. Because when Jesus died, when Jesus died, what happened? What happened to the physical temple? Does anybody know? Somebody tell me. What happened? The veil was torn from top to bottom. God was no longer there. This was invalid. They took the money that they were raising in, the ninth, in, in 66 AD, they finished building the temple. Four years later, God used the Romans to destroy the temple. It was gone because the temple was now here. Jesus is the temple. He now dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus was reju- rejecting the Jewish system. All the externals, all the exaltation of profit over the poor, all the distraction of worship, all the shutting down of outsiders. Jesus saying, no, no. And the people who wanted to see his work, listen, the people who wanted to see his work, demanded to see his work, never paid attention to his words and never saw who he really was and couldn't share in his life. And I don't want that for any of you. You've seen his work. We had a great time in our small group this week uh, just talking about the answered prayers that God has done. Uh, Lots of tears, lots of laughter, lots of joy. We think about the things that God has done. And I love to share in the things that God has done with the people that I know are his But people who want to see his work but don't want to believe his word will never have part of his life. And I don't want that for you. What do I do, Nate? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, all in favor of loving Jesus? Yeah. If you love me, keep my commandments. Let's start there. And what did Jesus say was the the greatest commandment? Anybody know? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Soul, mind, strength, everything. And the second is just like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's start there. 
Jesus is concerned about his house. He's our temple. Let's, let's get back to what we've been called to do, loving one another, worshiping, sharing the good news with boldness, being in his word. It's a, it's a tough call sometimes to be the preacher who's got to just keep preaching through a text, realizing where it's headed. But you know what? I believe in the word of God. And so I'm just asking you to consider your temple this morning. In fact, I'm not going to ask you to sing along in this closing song. I know some of you will anyways, right? But I'm asking you to just do some, some inner searching right now. Behold the throne of God above. We have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives His name is graven. My name is graven on his hand, the text says. My name is written in his heart. This is Jesus. We are to be worshiping. But let's take the time now while I pray and as they sing over us to get our hearts right. And then when you know you're like, I'm in a spot, Nate. I, I, I'm, I'm confessed up, Right? That's the best thing. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We just say it. I was, I was here to tell you Friday, I spent a lot of time in this room. But it wasn't for you guys, it was for me. Because the condition of the temple, the condition of the heart, I needed to be right with him so that I could share with you. Now you're in that same place I was. Take the time. Take the time. Get your heart right. Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name. You've asked us to come and to confess before you our need not only of you, but our need for you to continually purge us of our sinfulness. You're making us more like you, God, but, but we continue to sin on a regular basis. And so, God, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for making our worship stale. Forgive us for not honoring you as we should. Forgive us for using excuses or distractions. pray that you would fill this place with your glory. That you would break open the heavens and come down. Oh, that we would see you work in our midst in such a powerful way that, that just the neighbors would want to find out what's going on. That you would change lives, that lost would be saved and saved would be matured. The mature would multiply and you would grow in this place, in this time. God, help us. Help us to love you with our whole heart. May that be an extension of our worship before you. Jesus, we know that you ever plead for us. You are always on the throne before us. We ask that you would go before us in all of this. Holy Spirit, convict now where it's needed in the midst here online as they're watching. Father, we just pray that you would convict our hearts of where we have failed you in worship. What excuses are we using, God? Un unveil them. The hard truth that we need to hear. What distractions are we causing in worship right now that we need to set aside so that we can be pure before you? That's what we want. That's what we desire. This is your house. These are your people. Use it, we pray. In Jesus' name.
just stay seated as they sing over us. You do the hard work now. If you need me to pray with you, I'll be up front here. My microphone will be off. So you can come and we'll pray together. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.